<clears throat> Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Jonah. This is a uniquely uh, Hebrew way that narratives, that historical accounts are written. They begin with a, a one-letter one Hebrew particle. It's called a sequential conjunction, and it's often not translated. In IV, it's not translated at all, but if you were to translate it, it would, it would say, and it came to pass. It's the way that the Bible talks about history. These events, this narrative, this is real history. And um, this is the only prophecy, by the way, that comes to us entirely in that narrative form. Other books, like Isaiah, have some narrative portions, but this whole book is a story. It's a narrative. It's not sermons or, or, or whatever. This uh, book also, as Desmond Alexander noted, the book of Jonah is undoubtedly one of the masterpieces of biblical literature. With its unexpected twists and turns, the plot successfully retains our attention throughout. Superfluous details are omitted, and the text abounds in word plays and other compositional techniques. Everything indicates that it has been composed by an author who has used his literary skills to the full. And so for the next uh, four or five weeks, uh, for the month of November and maybe one more Sunday, we're going to use our best uh, concentration skills and see if we can't glean something that the Lord has to say to us from this little book of Jonah. <clears throat> Today we're just going to barely get, barely get started. We'll read the first three verses, and then from then on we'll take the rest of the chapter and then a chapter at a time, hopefully get through this book in five weeks. We'll see how that goes. Uh, Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, let me read. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go up to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. May I suggest two things we ought to learn from this uh, first little introductory uh, section of the book. The first is this, that sometimes God baffles us. Sometimes God baffles us. He leaves us bewildered, perplexed, confused, baffled. The book of Jonah is not primarily about Jonah, although he's the one that lived out this story. Nor is it about anyone else. The uh, sailors on the ship, the people of Nineveh, not one person is named in this whole book except Jonah. So it's certainly not about the great fish. That gets all the attention when you're telling the story to children. But in reality, it's just three little verses in the middle of the book that even mention the fish. Now the book of Jonah is primarily about God. The book has only 48 verses, but in those 48 verses, 41 times the Lord is mentioned, either as the Lord, Yahweh, or God. Clearly this book is about knowing the Lord, the one whom Jonah thought he knew, only to learn he didn't have a clue. So what does this book teach us about the Lord? Well, the first thing I think we learn is that sometimes God baffles us. Now, the original readers of Jonah had an advantage over us. They knew something about the prophet Jonah, and we probably don't know much about him, and they knew something about the city of Nineveh, and we probably don't know much about that. So right up front, we need to do a little background work and learn whatever we can about this prophet and this city in order to understand what this is, uh, is telling us. 
So first let me tell you what I've been able to learn about Nineveh. Nineveh was a major city in what is now Iraq. It is located right across the Tigris River from the modern city of Mosul. You heard about that in the news, I'm sure. It's 240 miles up the Tigris River from Baghdad. But more importantly for Jonah and for the people of Israel, Nineveh was a, an important city in the mighty Assyrian Empire of the day. Indeed, it later became so important that it was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire after Jonah's time for about a hundred years before that empire uh, uh, collapsed. And Assyria was Israel's great enemy. The Assyrians were ruthless. They obliterated nations, and they were a very aggressive and expansionist in their policies. As one Jewish writer put it, the Assyrians were the Nazi stormtroopers of the ancient world. They were the pitiless, power-crazed foe. They showed no quarter in battle, uprooting entire peoples in their fury for conquest. They were Israel's enemy. They had already attacked Israel years earlier in the time of King Ahab. And by Jonah's time, Israel had been paying tribute, taxes, a protection money, if you will, to the Assyrian Empire for at least 50 years, which was humiliated and which was economically oppressive to Israel. There's no doubt Israel hated the Assyrians for good reason. Only a few decades later, the Assyrians completely obliterated the land of Israel in 722 B.C. Our text simply says in verse 2 that God had taken note of Nineveh's wickedness. Now that word translated wickedness actually has two meanings. It can mean wicked. It can also mean wickedness. It can also mean calamity. And we know that Nineveh was wicked, like the rest of the Assyrian Empire. But we also know that calamity had come to Nineveh. There had been a great famine in Nineveh about this time. And there had also been a total solar eclipse. Now, for people that are ignorant of astronomy, you can imagine in the ancient world what terror that struck to people to have suddenly the sun go out in the middle of the day. So we might just say that God saw that Nineveh was in a bad way. Wicked place with lots of calamity. But from Jonah's perspective, from Israel's perspective, that's good. <laughs> if your oppressor, your arch enemy, the one who threatens your very existence, is faltering, hey, be thankful. If God gave his people this land that had promised to protect them, and now their worst enemy is faltering, how could God, certainly God would not do anything but hasten the collapse of that enemy. He certainly would not send one of his prophets to go help them or speak to them or anything. How utterly bewildering, perplexing is that thought? But that's what he did. Sometimes God baffles us. Oh, but there's more. Let me tell you what I've learned about Jonah. Jonah was a prophet of the Lord. He was a contemporary of the prophet uh, uh, Amos. Uh, actually, a contemporary of the prophet Hosea as well. 
although Hosea was a bit younger than Amos and Jonah. But unlike Amos, who was from the southern kingdom, you know, the, the Jews were divided into two kingdoms, the southern kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel. Judah was the line of David and it was uh, faithful to the Lord longer than Israel was. Uh, uh, but but uh, uh, Jonah was from the northern uh, kingdom of Israel. Uh, he was uh, a homegrown prophet, if you will. He had grown up there. And he prophesied during the days of King Jeroboam II, which would have been roughly from 790 to 750 B.C. Now, actually, we don't know very much about Jonah, but the things we do know, we learn from the Bible's description of Jeroboam II and his reign, which is in 2 Kings 14. There we learn uh, at least three significant things. We learn that King Jeroboam II was a wicked king in Israel who did not walk in the Lord's ways, did not follow the Lord his entire reign. Secondly, we learned that though he was a wicked king, he was successful in expanding the boundaries and securing the boundaries of Israel and, 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 and therefore uh, uh, was considered successful in the eyes of the people, I'm sure. And the third very interesting thing we learned is that he did that securing of the boundaries and, and, and uh, restoring the, the land. He did that in accordance with a prophecy that came from the prophet Jonah. Now that doesn't tell us much, but if we think about this a little bit, and what we know, in light of what we know about how things work in the world, it does suggest some significant things. It suggests that Jonah was probably pretty popular, even with this wicked king of his day. And being a popular hometown prophet, Jonah may well have had quite a flag-waving nationalistic spirit. I'm not presuming to judge Jonah or condemn Jonah, but that's how it tends to work, even today. If a Christian leader speaks about shoring up our borders, he's going to become the darling of the right, and he's going to be in there waving the flag with the, with the Republicans. But if he speaks of addressing the needs of the poor, he's going to instantly become the darling of the left, and they don't do flag waving because that's a suspect. Now, we don't know all this for sure, but when we compare Jonah with his contemporary Amos, it kind of looks that way. Jonah prophesied to, uh, to, uh, uh, that, that God would uh, extend the borders, would have the king extend the borders of, of Israel and secure the borders, and the king did that. It was what the king wanted to hear. Amos prophesied to the same king at the same time, the same country. Let me read you a little bit of Amos's prophecy to that king from Amos 2. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even four, I will not turn back my wrath. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and trample on the heads of the poor and upon the dust of the ground to deny justice to the oppressed. Now then I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with the grain. The swift will not escape. The strong will not muster their strength and the warrior will not save his life. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that the Jonah, the hometown prophet, who declared what people wanted to hear, would have been more popular than the preacher from down south who came railing on Israel. 
Well, so we know a little bit about Nineveh and its calamity and its wickedness, so we know a little bit about Jonah and what he was like. And so we come back to our text. When we read our text, the word of the Lord came to Jonah? Must be misprint. Must be the word of the Lord came to Amos, the mighty powerful prophet. The word of the Lord came to Jonah? Really? And he said, go up to the great city of Jerusalem. No, the city of Nineveh? You've got to be kidding. Nineveh? In the commentary, Rosemary Nixon writes, writes, to denounce Nineveh in Israel would have, been guaranteed, would have guaranteed Jonah popularity. But to be called to go and denounce Nineveh to the Ninevites was unthinkable. In calling Jonah to go to Nineveh, God was calling him not only to face the unknown, the opprobrium of his own people, ridicule, humiliation, and relinquishing of his own worldview, but also to venture alone into the most feared and hated place in order to show God's concern for his enemy. It was tantamount to facing death. The command was utterly and plainly absurd. Or as another writer puts it, to go to Nineveh means for Jonah to go to hell. Why Jonah? Why Nineveh? Don't know. Sometimes God baffles us. May I suggest you don't have God figured out any better than Jonah did? As we read in Isaiah 55, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways, says the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see, you will not always understand what God is doing and why he's doing it that way. And God doesn't have to give you an explanation. He does not have to do what you expect. He does not have to conform to your standards of what's reasonable. And he will not be put on trial by you or me. No wonder William Cooper wrote, God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. Sometimes God just baffles us. So how do we respond? Well, hopefully not like Jonah, which brings us to our second point. You cannot escape the Lord. You cannot escape the Lord. This week there was an interesting little news thing. I, I, I love it when God orders the whole news just to give me a good sermon illustration. <clears throat> On Wednesday there was a town hall type meeting at the State Department. All the uh, diplomatic corps was there, and it became a very heated, contentious meeting. Angry U.S. Di di diplomats lashed out at a plan, <clears throat> at their leaders, who suggested a plan that would send some of them to serve in Iraq against their will. One foreign officer named Jack Crody said, It is one thing if someone believes in what's going on over there and volunteers, but it's another thing to send someone over there 
on a forced assignment. I'm sorry, but basically that's a potential death sentence, and you know it, he said to his boss. <laughs> hmm. The man must have been reading Jonah. That was exactly Jonah's response when God sent him to exactly the same place, Iraq. problem was Jonah was being sent by the Lord, not the U.S. State Department, and you can't escape the Lord. Oh, Jonah tried to escape. That's the whole story of the first half of this book, and it starts right here in verse 3. Let me read it again. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Because Jonah did not understand and did not approve of God's perplexing order, he just simply refused to comply. He didn't argue with God. He didn't ask God why. He just packed up his stuff and ran away, no matter what the cost. The literary details of this verse uh, gives us a sense of how stunning the prophet's behavior was. Little details that of writing that we don't see clearly in English, but are there to the Hebrew scholars who I read. Verse 1 begins, The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now, actually, that phrase, the word of the Lord came to someone, is a very common phrase. It's used 93 times in the Old Testament. It's the stuff of all the prophets. <clears throat> the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to Amos. And it's always met with the same response. Obedience except in the case of Jonah, who did just the opposite. In verse 3, God said literally, up, go, or arise and go. This too is a common command to various uh, prophets. Arise and go, do this and that. And the normal response is, and the prophet arose and went. But here we read that Jonah went down. Three times it says it. He went down. Arise and go to Nineveh. He went down to Joppa. He went down into the boat. And later in chapter 2, he went down into the water. <laughs> Jonah intended to try to escape the Lord. Then there's a stunning geography involved. You may not know your biblical geography. I always have to look up the maps myself. We know from 2 Kings 14 that uh, Jonah was uh, from a place called Gath-Hefer. It's a, a, a little, little town in the area of Galilee. It's just rest west of the Sea of Galilee. So God said, go to Nineveh. That's straight northeast of Galilee. And Jonah got up and went straight southwest to the port of Joppa. God sent Jonah on an overland journey, probably 600 miles as the crow flies, probably 900 miles as the road goes, inland toward Nineveh. Jonah got on a boat and started out across the Mediterranean toward Tarshish, which we think was probably in the southwest of Spain, 2,000 miles by water in the opposite direction. The Lord gave his command. There's a certain urgency to the command. Jonah made sure that for maybe as much as a year, he was going to be tied up on a boat going away from Nineveh. He was determined 
to escape the Lord. Indeed, the word flee that is used here, that word itself pointedly tells us what Jonah was doing. I read an interesting explanation of the word from the Lutheran Old Testament scholar James Lindbergh. He says, the verb flee has the sense of running away from a relationship or a community. Thus, Hagar flees from her mistress, and Jacob flees from, Jake, from Laban, and Moses flees from the service of Pharaoh, and Jephthah flees from his brothers. The idea is to make a break with past relationships and begin a new life outside those relationships. And it is possible to flee from a person or community. But only of Jonah is it said that he intended to flee from the presence of the Lord. Which brings us to the stunning theological contradiction of it all. Jonah was a prophet of God. Jonah knew the scriptures that existed at the time. He, he, he confessed that he believed these things. He later confesses God as the creator and sovereign ruler of heaven and earth. Jonah must have known Psalm 139. It had been written 250 years before by King David. It probably was something Jonah had sung many times as he worshipped, where it says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up into the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Jonah just conveniently forgot all that in his determination to escape the Lord's presence. Jonah probably had heard the preaching of his contemporary, the prophet Amos. Amos had warned against trying to flee from God's presence Listen to the word of the Lord uh, that we have in Amos chapter 9. There we read, Not one will get away. None will escape. Though they dig down to the depths of the grave, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to the heavens, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves on the top of Mount Carmel, there I will hunt them down and seize them. Though they hide from me in the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent to bite them. Still Jonah was determined to flee from the Lord. But you cannot escape the Lord. Dear friends, we need to be reminded of this. We have very sophisticated ways of fleeing. We can hide ourselves in our work and our busyness. We can escape into the incessant noise of our entertainment. We can numb our conscience with drinks drugs. Few of us set out to physically try to run from God. Instead, we probably get angry or resentful, or we may become a cynic and takes out our frustration on other people, or we may leave our church in a huff with some self-righteous tirade against everybody. Whatever the details of our rebellion, when God demands what we least want to do in life, or when God withholds what we crave more than anything in life. In those moments of trial, we need to remember what Jonah learned the hard way. You cannot escape the Lord. Well, just those two simple truths this morning. Sometimes God 
baffles us. But you cannot escape the Lord. We'll revisit those things many times, I'm sure, as we study through this book. But before we quit, one more thing. As we consider the story of Jonah, we dare not miss the greater story going on here. For you see, Jonah wasn't the only prophet from Galilee. There was another one, you may recall, who also was sent by God on a most difficult, unlikely mission to a wicked bunch of people to proclaim mercy, not judgment. But unlike Jonah, this man of God embraced his calling. We read of him being in very nature God. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance of a man He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now during the earthly ministry of this Jesus, he repeatedly was asked for a sign. And he repeatedly said, I'm not giving you any sign except the sign of the servant of the prophet Jonah. As we'll see as we go through the book, that sign has different facets. It's a a bit difficult to just really get a handle on exactly what that sign is. But let's make no mistake about the great truth that underlies that statement of Jesus. The book of Jonah intends to show us Christ. He is the one who understood, was not baffled by the Father's plan. Jesus is the one who was the faithful prophet who does not shrink back from the hard assignment. Jesus is the one who cares enough about the wicked to go to hell and back for us. Jesus is the one who is worthy of our total allegiance when we understand what's happening and when we don't have a clue. So even when God's ways baffle you, don't run from Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this story that many many of us heard when we were little children. But an account that as we study as adults speaks volumes to us about you, who you are, where your heart is, what our relationship to you is. So as we studied, I pray we would learn from it. That we would grow in our knowledge of you and our obedience to you. It's easy, Lord, to confess the right things when everything's going right and we're comfortable. But when we don't understand what you're doing and when you press us out of the area where we're comfortable and into things that seem threatening, Lord, we're all tempted to run. Give us grace to be faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.